Did you ever wonder why clinical trials fail? Then listen to this episode. At the beginning, you should talk, I would say, even to five. Five different CROs at different sizes. and But look at their experience and see what they can do. Do they have the regional experience, the indication, the sites? So they have a lot of these presentations they can provide you. And there must not be only the shiny um, dog and pony shows. Did you know that almost 90% of all product ideas fail in clinical trials? Here is the thing. Most of them not because of lack of efficacy. This is episode number 71 in which I talk about clinical trial management, especially about the topic how to rescue a clinical trial when it is at risk to fail. The most obvious reason that the clinical trial fails is a lack of efficacy or safety. And efficacy is one of the core goals of every clinical trial. Based on the results, a trial can be successful or fail. Surprising to me, however, was that lack of efficacy doesn't seem to be the main reason why clinical trials fail in the first place. Other factors are at play, and most of them are manageable risks when the right team is at work. The problem with failing trials is that it becomes a costly endeavor for sponsors and investors. Taking out manageable sources of failure during the clinical trial can help gain speed, save expenses, and decrease the probability of success. The big questions when it comes to clinical trials are, why do clinical trials fail? What factors are manageable risks in clinical trials? What can a sponsor do to manage them? After reading some studies on this topic, I asked Heike Schoen to join for a podcast recording to explore this area further to find out what sponsors can do to make clinical trials successful and reduce the risk of Failure. Heike Schön has worked in management positions in clinical research for more than 20 years. Her experience ranges from conducting national and international phase one clinical trials all the way to registration and post-marketing activities in various indications. She had positions within the contract research organizations, CROs, and in the biotechnology industry. Her previous positions also included operational and general management. She holds a master's degree in psychology and a master's degree in business administration. Since 2002, she has been active in the Association of Clinical Research Professionals, where she also served as a member of the Board of Trustees and as its chair in 2010. Heike is a regular speaker at international conferences and publishes within clinical research and medical device magazines. Loomis International Limited was founded in 2013 with the goal to act as a bridge to Europe for clinical research activities. The company is specialized in providing legal and data representation, services and regulatory consulting for biopharmaceutical and medical device companies who intend to develop their product in the European market, but are located outside of Europe. Loomis Life Science Consulting was founded in 2020 as an independent subsidiary of Loomis International, 
to provide customer tailored consulting and solutions for clinical vendor selection and management, clinical trial oversight, quality management, and training. Flexibility and empathy are core to the Loomis brand. They go the extra mile to support the clients. Questions we will discuss in this episode. Strategic considerations for setting up a clinical trial, in-house versus outsourced clinical study management. Why do some clinical trials fail? Steps to getting your clinical trial back on track, future trends of clinical trials, and much, much more. Enjoy the show. Hi, Kate. It's good to see you. How are you today? Okay, fine. Thanks. Yeah, thanks a lot for inviting me for this webinar. It's good to have you here. Hi, Kate. How is life in Berlin these days? Perfect. Sun, blue sky, warm weather. <laughs> That's perfect. <laughs> That's very good to hear. Today's topic is clinical trials, especially when clinical trials fail. Can you give the audience a little bit of uh, your background, a little bit of context to the episode? What yeah. is Loomis International and what are you doing? Okay. So yeah, shortly to me. So my name is Heike Schön and I'm the co-founder and managing director of the different Loomis companies. We are meanwhile a Loomis group. And my background is I have worked more than 25 years in clinical research, in different CROs, and also in the biotechnology industry. And uh, in 2013, we, we are three shareholders, we decided uh, that we can use our knowledge to help companies, especially small to mid-sized companies outside of Europe to come to Europe, to help them coming to Europe. Um, as legal representative to represent them. Because when you are uh, a company outside of Europe, you want to conduct a clinical trial in Europe, you have to have a legal representative. And we three shareholders are very knowledgeable in this field. One of our shareholders is a lawyer, a pharma lawyer. The other is a medical um, specialist, a key opinion leader, as you can say, uh, and, and myself with a clinical research operational background. So we thought this could be a successful team to help companies coming into Europe. It turned out it was really a good idea. And a lot of companies have uh, meanwhile received our help to establish them in Europe. And with these activities, more and more the interest of companies were coming towards us. Can you help us finding a CRO? Can you help us managing the study? Do do oversight. What is going wrong with my study? So we have started more and more moving into a consulting business. And then we decided, okay, this is a different business. One is the legal representation, but let's have a separate company. So we founded Loomis Life Science Consulting two years ago, just one week before the lockdown in Germany started. <laughs> and um, But this is also catching up very nicely. So we are working with companies outside of Europe to support them in oversight management, in vendor selection. And we do this also meanwhile for a lot of companies within Europe. So it's, I think this is a nice part that we can combine our knowledge, not only outside, but also inside of Europe. And then the Brexit came. And with the Brexit, of course, another change came to us because we are also the data representative for companies when they come to Europe. They also need a data representative, not a data protection officer. This is different, but the data representative. And in UK, of course, you have to do this by having a subsidiary in UK. So we opened up our London office. So now we have three companies supporting in Europe, outside of Europe, in UK, and we have a representation also in Switzerland so that we can also cover legal representation within Switzerland. So that's the background from Loomis. 
And due to all of our experience working here at Loomis and the founders and our yeah, projects we are running, um, yeah, our idea came up to talk about um, a topic which is, I think it's an important topic. And a lot of people, a lot of companies have experienced rescue and clinical trials. And so I think it was a great idea that you said, okay, let's have a podcast about it. <laughs> Yeah, it's, uh, I think this is one of the most important topics uh, ever. When I started in life science in 2006, I saw these high failure rates of our products that um, mostly fail in clinical trials. And I always thought it's about science, it's a scientific failure. And uh, I think that the number is about 90% of uh, all compounds that go into clinical trials don't reach the market at the end yeah. of the day. Um, and today, uh, I'm very happy that you're here because we can now dissect this problem and look at it. And it's not really only scientific reasons or scientific reasons are only a minority of, of, of reasons why clinical trials fail. There are other factors that are in play. And one of the factors that I experienced in my life is always one discussion. When is the right time to start a clinical trial in a company? I mean, you take the compound from university and then you have years and years ahead until it reaches the clinic. What is your opinion on, on the right timing? When should companies, when they plan to do anything, uh, any trial in human beings, when should they start thinking about clinical trials? I would say as early as possible. Because when you, whether it's a spin-off from university or you're a founder of a completely new company, I mean, first of all, you have to have a business plan before you do any of your business. This business plan always contains clinical research and clinical activities. Pre yeah, but, it's, but, it's, but, it's two, but it's two years down the road. So it's two worry. years down the road, but as, as the, the preparation of a clinical trial takes also quite some time, I think it's very um, important to start as early as possible to streamline your preclinical results with your plan of clinical trials, because this always has to match. Otherwise, you would get problems also with the regulatory approvals of clinical trials. If your preclinical data and your uh, clinical plan is going in diverse directions. And so I would always recommend to start as early as possible to use the results of your preclinical data and in connection to your synopsis, to your target product profile, which you have to develop at the beginning and see that it's streamlined. So I think I can only recommend as early as possible. I completely agree with that. I like this backward thinking. So thinking back from the market and uh, clinical trials are part of the way to the market and implementing that in the companies early on helps also, as you mentioned, uh, in planning the business. Another thing that I always experience that I'm curious to hear your opinion on is uh, you have a company and the company is in preclinical development or translational research. And then a company starts planning the clinical trial. And there is one concept of, yeah, okay, we give it to a CRO and we don't have to worry about anything anymore afterward. You just need uh, a CEO and you need a chief scientific officer and that's it. And you can wind down the, the rest of the company, the clinic is running and job done. Uh, how is reality? How is the reality for a sponsor in your opinion? Completely different, of course. It's, <laughs> I mean, we, clinical research or ge general, the, the drug development is a very highly regulated uh, and in, acting in a very highly regulated environment. 
And therefore, you have to fulfill a lot of duties as a sponsor when you conduct clinical trials. Even you can outsource 100% of all your activities. That's no problem at all. But the final responsibility is always with the sponsor. So there is never the situation just having one person taking a little bit care of a clinical trial when it's going on as a CRO. No, there is much more work to do. It has the proper planning. The selection of the CRO is very important. And, uh, and it needs a lot of resources also to oversight a clinical trial. Can you, can you go a little bit deeper? Uh, I mean, you always have the, uh, the feeling that um, being a sponsor is uh, the cool part of the job. You just have to <laughs> invest the money and then you can uh, relax, sit on the beach and uh, uh, watch the waves uh, coming in. What What is the role of a sponsor? Give a little bit more detail. Please. Yeah. So, I mean, we have ICHGCP and the revision of R2, which clearly defines the role of the sponsor. And this is the... and. You have to comply as a sponsor with the duties. You have to oversee the clinical trial. You have to prove that you oversee the clinical trial. You have to have the finances when you start your clinical trial. You cannot make a full contract, for example, mm -hmm. when you don't have the full amount of money. You can go for part contracts. And um, so you have to uh, make sure that the protocol is in adherence with the disease, with the indication. So there's a lot of roads. The quality management is a big issue. Of course, as a sponsor, you have to ensure that your quality management systems is in place for, uh, for the whole activities around drug development. And I mean, all these activities have to be done. And, and so that means... Um, Yeah, why do you have to do this? Of course, to guarantee the safety of the patients, but also to be at any time inspection ready. You might not have an inspection when it comes to first to your first inhuman study, but at latest at phase two, inspections could come up and they will look really at the details, how you did your oversight, your planning, your vendor selection, how did you validate your vendors, how did you qualify your vendors? I mean, these are all the activities you have to ensure in a proper way. And um, the good thing is FDA and EMA, they publish inspection reports, which is very interesting if you want to learn what to avoid. And uh, and that's also these inspection reports, they always lead to changes in regulations, to adapting regulations. It was one of the reasons why ICH was also revised mm -hmm. because um, more and more technology beca uh, um, became important in clinical trials. That means also for a sponsor to ensure that all the vendors providing the technology have validated systems, revalidated systems. And these were findings from inspections, which then led to a change in ICHGCP. And uh, let me ask you one question. Who should feel as a, as a sponsor? So what what uh, organization? <laughs> in the, I mean, um, is it the CRO or is it the the company with the money back that hands over no the cro is no the cro is definitely the service provider and that's also defined in gcp the sponsor is the company providing the financing and the organization for the and the compound for the um, clinical trial of course you can also be co-sponsor so that you have two different companies moving forward but the mm. responsibility is with the sponsor not with the cro They have so, other responsibilities. <laughs> so, so basically, you can say there's there's no time to sit on the beach because a company. Unfortunately, not. When, when <laughs> the, so, any company that raises money and that uh, engages a CRO for conducting a clinical trial and hands over their money back uh, is then automatically the sponsor, and it's within the responsibility of the sponsor that everything runs well in the clinical trial. And when push comes to shove. Uh, the regulatory authorities uh, go to the sponsor and not to the zero. Is that the right understanding that I got? 
Uh, no, this, this year also I will also be inspected. So when you have an inspection on a clinical study, let's say in the phase three, then uh, they go, the ins inspectors go to the uh, sponsor, to the CRO and to the sites. So they do uh, quite a, a multifaceted inspection to see whether the study is in compliance with the, requir the regulatory requirements and guidelines. No, no, this will be all over. But the sponsor, a company, Not the investor. The investor gives the money, but the sponsor company who defines what the uh, plan will be, what the drug will be, they are the main responsible uh, party. So basically, when we talk about, I mean, I think uh, everybody knows BioNTech, meanwhile, after two years in the pandemic and the vaccine development. So basically, the sponsor of the clinical trials was then BioNTech, but yes. uh, not the shareholders of BioNTech. No, not and the shareholders. They are... The shareholders might be the responsible part, not the investors, but the mm. shareholders. So that I th think we have to maybe uh, distinguish here. Yeah, but the executives at the end of the day are then responsible that yeah. everything runs fine in the company. And it's similar on the private market. So uh, the investor, the VCs that give the money are not the sponsors, but it's the company in between and the executive boards then has the responsibility for the clinical trial and should be ready to be inspected once they dose the first patient. Mm -hmm. Um This leads me to the next question. What is what is your recommendation for the time that the company should then take to plan a clinical trial properly? Yeah, this is also, again, a backward approach. I mean, there are different um, aspects to it when to start preparing a clinical trial. One key aspect for me is what takes the longest to prepare. That could mm -hmm. be the drug, the, the investigational drug. Because sometimes, depending on the ingredients, it could take up to one year that everything can be ready. Uh, you have to get the material from wherever. So I think you have to consider always what takes the longest time to be developed. Because maybe you want to start in 12 months a clinical trial, and, and you need, uh, but you need 16 months to prepare your investigational medicine product. You should start earlier. And from this on, you, you can start preparing further on. And I think... And companies do it very different. I have realized sometimes they do on short notice the CRO selection. Others, they start already one year before the study starts to really talk with CROs, to get the input from CROs, to get the input from specialists. I think um, I would always allow for much more time to prepare and to discuss in detail the plan of the clinical study with the regulatory authorities. You might go for scientific advice meetings. You might discuss with uh, certain authorities. And uh, so, therefore, at a minimum is one year, but the more, the better. So a minimum is one year uh, that should be taken into consideration also in the planning and yeah. asking for money. And you mentioned before, the clinical trial needs to be financed entirely before filing with the authorities. Um, it should be. It's a recommendation. I mean, of course, it is not always possible. But uh, if you can foresee that you might have an issue with the financing, then... Mm. Uh, and CROs are used to it, you can have maybe only a contract covering the study startup because then you can have some some results in the study startup with the CRO. Because it is also a problem when in the middle of the clinical trial, suddenly you have no budget to continue. <laughs> yeah, so this is not in the interest of patients, mm -hmm. yeah, not of the authorities and definitely not of the sites. So I think um, you should be more careful in, in the financing process Uh, when you start your clinical trial, you should have uh, the awareness about um, 
yeah, what is needed throughout until the end. I couldn't agree more. Having properly financed company and uh, also the resources set up uh, helps then moving forward. Uh, let's jump to the time when the study started. Uh, I very often get the perception that uh, the study oversight is in uh, also an easy cheesy job, even with the uh, uh, with the inspections of authorities. And sometimes companies say. Why should I engage outside people? I have a lot of assistance in the company. They can do the study oversight quite easily. Uh, besides the other duties, because what, what do you have to do? You have uh, to just collect a few reports and that's it. What is uh, your recommendation when it comes to clinical study management, uh, in-house versus out-house clinical study management? Uh, what is, what really needs to be done in Europe? Well, if you, for example, the CRO is conducting your clinical trial and you have to make oversight management of the different activities. I think it's not really a job of an assistant because you need a specific knowledge. You should have experienced people, medical person or project managers who can conduct the oversight, who are, you have the awareness about what can happen in a clinical trial, the perspective, the risk management approach. I mean, this is a classical risk management approach. Uh, where you consider what can happen and how can you mitigate the risks. And so that means um, even if you have a very good clinical trial assistant, she cannot or he cannot cover all of the activities, only parts of it. And we always recommend a kind of little rule of thumb, and, and but don't ask me how I derive it. It's um, when you outsource a clinical trial for every six to seven person, Working in the CRO, you should have one person conducting oversight in your company. Well, well let, let's have a little bit. For every six to seven. Yeah, or let's, let's say five to seven person. For every five, five to seven person in a CRO working in your, on your clinical trial, you should have one person in your company performing oversight. So if you go for a phase two clinical study to be easily in three, four different countries, you have at least, let's say 15 monitors who will work at the CRO to oversee the activities at the sites, 10 to 50 monitors. So that means you have to do some proper oversight management, at least with one to two person in your own company to properly work together with the CRAs to, to, to review their reports, to, to use the dashboard the CRO is providing to look at regular um, reports, meeting minutes. So this is a kind of a relationship. So that means you have always to consider carefully as a company how many people you have with experience who can do the oversight management. And it depends, of course, in the different phases of the study, and it depends on the different timelines of the study. A study startup is much more resource intensive mm -hmm. than later at the end when it comes to statistical analysis and reporting. So can you give a little bit of insight what proper on oversight management should look like in your opinion? So with a little bit more detail. Wow. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's, um, the oversight, of course, the, what, what is possible depends also on the CRO you are working with. Uh, meanwhile, a lot of CROs provide ec excellent uh, business intelligence mm. so that you can use, you get access as a sponsor to their dashboard. You can have real-time data. You see what is going on. And um, this is one thing. But of course, uh, there are a lot of smaller CROs who might not have this technology, but still have a lot of uh, possibilities that you can have access mm -hmm. to the reports. Mm -hmm. So at least what you need to know is um, as real as possible what is happening in your clinical trial. 
And then you should always know really what is impacting the, 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 uh, the clinical trial, the timelines, the costs, um, the safety of the, of the clinical trial. So we recommend to have good key performance indicators as an oversight uh, measurement tool. If you have key performance and you don't need many, I mean, it's, let's say seven to 10 key performance indicators, uh, well chosen, uh, what have the highest impact, what has the highest impact on a clinical trial. And these can be measured. These key performance indicators can be uh, developed together with the CRO. They have the systems, the data management system, for example, the study startup system. So you define together with them, you get regular reports on the key performance indicator. You don't need to do this by yourself. This is another problem a lot of sponsors have that they do micromanagement on the CROs. And they double the work. <laughs> they do a lot of Excel trackers. So I saw biotech companies where I said, okay, these are companies consisting of Excel trackers. So they track everything, but then they lost oversight <laughs> on all what they tracked. This is not the reason. This is not the sense of oversight. The oversight should really provide you with a clear picture where your clinical trial stands and also with alerts if something goes wrong. Then you do proper oversight. Yeah. And they also believe it's a lot about, uh, relationship management with people. I mean, when I think uh, CROs usually work with more companies and if I as a sponsor want to have a high priority, it's always good to stay in touch with people and uh, manage the relationship so that uh, they feel that the sponsor is also uh, engaged in the study. I made a, it was not um, in the life science industry. It was more in the agriculture industry, but uh, I learned very well back in uh, 2002, three and four, how things change to the better when people are in touch with the person who pays the bills at the end of the day and things move more smoothly and more quickly. Absolutely. And this brings uh, to another point, which is very important. Good that you mentioned the, the relationship. It is the relationship, but it's also the understanding the different cultures. I mean, sometimes we have, I mean, Small biotech companies, the smallest one I worked with had three people and everything was outsourced. Yeah. <laughs> and they have a culture, of course, the decision-making process is without discussions. It's just done by the CEO. The CRO it's, uh, themselves were a couple of hundred people. Of course, they had a structure, an organigram. They had very complex decision-making processes. And this can really cause a culture clash because uh, yeah, the smaller company was not used to discuss much. And then they suddenly expected decision-making power of people who didn't have any decision-making power. So it's very important for both parties to understand each other's culture and to accept the differences and to work with the differences. And for small companies, you can always consider that the CRO is much bigger and much more complex in the organization than yourself. And so I think then the relationship building is even more important and um but to make sure that you understand each other on a very good level. I, I think this is sometimes very challenging because it's not only the culture between uh, the different sizes of the company. So you have these uh, small biotechs with a few people, highly specialized, and then you have the big structures of zeros. Uh, also trials are very often set up in different countries. And uh, as we are in Europe, uh, Every country is proud of their own culture. So <laughs> language. Bring, and, and language on top of that. Yeah. And non-native speakers, we always try to do our best in English, but let's face it, we are not native speakers. Yeah. So there is a lot of management that needs to be done. And I think uh, sponsors, any biotech company that raises funds from investors should plan that upfront 
uh, and tell the investor what their belief is really necessary to get done so that the clinical trial is at the end of the day successful. So basically, it's not taking a Coke and popcorn and relax and sit down. It's uh, hard work that needs to be done. Yeah, it is hard work. And it's... Uh... This is, yeah, it can be easily underestimated, the resources which are needed, the budget which is needed, and maybe also additional resources you have to add to your company. I have made experience that uh, suddenly a company starts with a phase two clinical trial, having um, 35 sites involved in different countries, and uh, have they themselves had two people working in the finance department. And suddenly all these, these two people on top should check uh, in investigator invoices of 35 sites and it was impossible. So, I mean, these are things you have to be also prepared to outsource clinical studies or to run a clinical trial and know what additional resources you might need besides the clinical people, besides the operational people. So it's not only setting up one contract and then the work is done, unfortunately. No, unfortunately not. <laughs> can we can we come up? I mean, um, I started writing with the pandemic two years ago and uh, I did a little bit of research in how to structure articles. And what goes always very well is these three-step processes and these mm -hmm. three-step checklist is for sponsors. Uh, can we turn it into a three-step checklist for sponsors to keep studies on track? What needs to be done? What are the three most important steps in your opinion? Well, in my opinion, I think one is what we just talked about is establish a very well, uh, uh, yeah, communication tool with the CRO, with the vendors. It can be through a governance charter, but really establish good communication with the CRO and very transparent. Um, what we have experienced and what we always recommend is that a sponsor should be very clear on its expectations. Because it's often say, oh, yeah, this is a nice year. Oh, we give it to them. They're nice people. And they just hand over this uh, the uh, study. But then suddenly things are happening. Nobody talked before about it. And it was obvious that these expectations were not uh, very clearly communicated to the CRO, to the vendor. Then they do what they think is the right thing. <laughs> and this could also be a very different opinion from both sides. So I think clear expectations at the beginning, clear uh Uh, developed roads and responsibilities would be the second part. And um, the third part is also what we uh, just talked, uh, try to develop a good business intelligence, a dashboard, make sure that you have your KPIs in place and, and work with your KPIs for the study performance. So it's all about communication and motivation. So it's clear yeah. management and this needs senior and experienced people in the Absolutely. working yeah. at the sponsor. And this needs also then to be communicated in business plans to the investors and proper funding put in place so that these things can work. So now the big days come. So let's assume we did everything fine. We got uh, millions on the bank accounts to conduct clinical trials to do phase one and phase two studies. And... Um, The authorities, ethics committees say everything's fine, protocol well written, move forward, those your first patient. What can go wrong then, in your opinion? What are the three main reasons why so many clinical trials fail? Yeah, the, so the majority of the clinical trials fail It's um, because they fail in enrollment timelines. And this is, again, we go backwards, the selection of the sites. Um, Do you have the right sites 
ready for you to start working? Are they ready for you to start working? And is the CRO ready and initiating immediately the sites after you have a positive approval by the authorities? Mm. So this can be, and this has a lot of influence. The study startup is a key activity for your clinical trial. If you have delays in study startup, for example, the sites are not initiated in time, they are not the right sites, because you did not uh, perform the proper feasibility assessment beforehand. So the later a site starts to enroll patients, the later, of course, the patients will be ready for, for um, closing again. And so as much, so the preparation time is a key part in, in a clinical trial, to my opinion. And um, even though you have your positive approval, it doesn't mean that immediately the clinical trial starts. That means another planning and uh, awareness and alertness that immediately all the activities uh, are moving forward. And so, but then still, even if you're doing it, enrollment can lag behind your timelines. And this can result in, because maybe you have involved sites where suddenly they, when they see the final protocol, that they have only one or two patients who might fit into the protocol. But beforehand, they said, oh, in this indication, we have 15. So yeah, that is easy. And they don't mean it badly because they still think, of course, they have the patient. But then suddenly the protocol, which they have not seen before, maybe in the, such a detailed level, uh, shows that it's a reduced number. Hmm. And so this is go this goes back again in prep preparing while you are recruiting sites really to look at what what kind of patients do they have does they fit in in the uh, protocol and um, to avoid yeah having wrong sites and or sometimes when you start your clinical trial um or you change certain aspects in a clinical trial that can be demotivating for sites and they also do not enroll not many patients or other studies are faster in, in starting and enrolling patients, which are in the same indication. Let's, let's stay a little bit with this enrollment, enrollment perspective. Um, what are, in your opinion, common factors this lead, leads to a study requiring rescue when we look at uh, enrollment? Let's dig a little bit deeper because I think mm -hmm. this is important. It's, in my opinion, a management, uh, management work, but I think we should give them a little bit more room here. Yes, I mean, when you start preparing your clinical trial or you talk with the CROs, you will see CROs will always recommend that you do a proper feasibility assessment. And I think this is key to a startup um, for, a, for a clinical study. You can have one part is that the sponsor themselves have done some good research in the incidence of the disease and where the patients could be found. Uh, and then, of course, the question is whether the protocol and the patients match. So this is one part. But then the other part is the feasibility assessment. And this is normally done very well by CROs. They know sites, they know the countries, they know the incidences of the diseases. And, um, and this is a point where you should not try to save money on it because this is very important information which could also redirect your clinical study. We have uh, experiences very often that a sponsor had an idea of four or five countries and the feasibility results had a different uh, idea of countries and would we, would, uh, we should add different countries also then. And this should be taken serious because uh, the CROs have much more experience as a sponsor has. The sponsor is doing maybe one or two clinical trials and the CRO is doing 50 clinical trials in this indication. And when they talk to their sites, it can be much more realistic on the enrollment, on the uh, feasibility of the study in, in certain countries. 
And I think this is, uh, I, I have the impression this is very often also underestimated, the use of the feasibility results, because there could be certain interests. Yeah, I would prefer to go to the Netherlands, to Belgium. It's much easier. I don't want to go to certain other countries. There might be problems with regulators. Let's, let's always include Barcelona, definitely. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I would also, Paris, it's good for <laughs> springtime. No, but it's, it's, I think it's something uh, which, is, uh, which should not be taken. I mean, that no personal interest should be taken into these kind of mm. decisions, but really real data, facts and figures, and uh, then going to the country. And uh, if you are in, unsecure whether this country would be accepted by the authorities, or, uh, talk to them. It's part of your scientific advice. And um, but I think uh, a lot of yeah. When you do, I mean, when when clinical trials go wrong, you should do a very good root cause analysis. And one part is definitely the feasibility assessment that it was maybe ignored or not taken into a full account. So this is, uh, yeah, and again, invest in the study startup. <laughs> I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. Whenever I saw a clinical trial fail, it, uh, the, one of the major reasons was enrollment and miscalculation of the enrollment, which uh, at the end of the day led to a lot of frustration at the investor side. So when there's the feasibility study, which is done very quickly, comes up with one year time until the study is finished. And uh, the CFO then communicates this timeline to the investor. They build up the expectation. And this is the mm. point that you mentioned before, that uh, managing the expectations is key to success of a clinical trial. And after one year, when the investors then review the study plan and the reality and they find out, for example, it's just come up with a number of 20, you need 20 patients. And you have enrolled two patients. Yeah. And 18 are missing. Then the analyst at the investor just makes a rough calculation and says, okay, I mean, if they continue with that rate, uh, we are not finished in 10 years. So what shall we do? And the investor mm -hmm. gets frustrated because they say, okay, after one year, you are finished and you need 80 patients, 18 patients more. How will you get them? And, uh, what can be done in such cases in your opinion? What are the big points then? How, how should people deal with that situation? Yeah, I mean, there are also different levels. I would, let's keep, let's, let's stay with the investors first. Um, I have seen in some companies, investors coming regularly in for meetings uh, online or in person, like once a quarter or once half a year and really digging into the details, asking for the progress of the study, understanding if something went wrong or something is, or everything is working well. So I think it's also the investors who should be much more involved in, in um, overseeing their investment and uh, working with the sponsors. So this would be one part I would always recommend. And I have experienced that it works very well and it's a very, it can be a very good relationship between sponsor and investors. And uh, the other part of course is um, to be again on, in real time at hand, understanding what is ongoing with your clinical trial. So for example, The majority of the CROs nowadays have study startup managers. These are different from those project managers after a patient, when patient enrollment starts. So they do all the proper uh, planning when you have your clinical trial application, when the next site can be initiated, and then the site says, okay, when the first patient can be enrolled. These are very critical numbers and they have to be tracked very closely. And, um, and here also the sponsor should always see 
Is the study initiated? Is the site initiated? When does the site start or be involved? I mean, a lot of small sponsors think that they don't need to be involved because nobody knows them. But because this is because nobody knows them, they should be involved. They should go to the sites. Of course, it's a time and, and resource uh, question. But the more they are also present next to the CRO, the more um, the sites are very convinced about, uh, let's say, the IMP, which is maybe a new development, a very innovative product. And sometimes investigators could also be a little bit, you know, reluctant, a little bit hesitant whether this is good or not. But if they can talk to the CMO of the sponsor or a medical advisor who is really knowledgeable in this field, they get much more uh, confidence. And this can also support a lot the enrollment of patients. No, I, I completely agree. Active management should not be underestimated. So yeah. the impact of uh, active management. Um, I mean, there is always the question, how should we deal with people? Is technology enough? And it really makes a difference. Rather, meeting a person once a month over a coffee, just traveling there for a coffee, even if it's uh, if it does cost money, then writing an email. I mean, email can get lost. They can't be read. And when I try to remember the study sites I worked with, uh, they don't do only one study. So they have a lot of studies going on in parallel. And those who stay in touch with... Uh, the people involved in the clinical trial usually are high up the list on the priority if they manage your relationships really well. Is this something, is this a perception that you would also share? Is this something that you also experience similarly? Yes, I think it's always good to have some personal relationship. But, but when you look at the last two years, this was next to impossible. Yeah, we Unfair. have... Everything went online, yeah. So it's, uh, but they are now also used to do it online. But you can have an online call with your uh, principal investigator. I think because, yeah, now it's not the time that you just drop by and have a coffee because you don't get the permission going into the hospital or anything. But, uh, but you should try to to maintain contact and find out what would be the best way to reach this person. It could be a call. It could be an on a video call. It depends, but I think it's still very important to maintain relationship and to build relationship, especially because these are also the future prescribers of your drug. This is the, the fine line between uh, micromanaging and uh, managing relationships very well. Yeah, but it doesn't mean that you, the micromanagement is a problem sometimes between sponsor and CRO, that the mm -hmm. sponsor is going too much into the clinical trial and, and doing sometimes the double of the work this CRO is doing yeah? and tracking all the monitoring visits, which is not necessary because the CRO is doing it also. And, um, but the micromanagement of the site should be also communicated to the CRO. Of course, the CRO should always know when you as a sponsor visiting a site or when you're talking to the principal investigator. But this is part of a transparent, open communication that both know it, uh, exactly what the others are doing. I just want, I mean, most of the time I was working with uh, biotech companies, life science companies, uh, that uh, are basically follow the category that you mentioned, small companies with a, a few people acting as a project management team. And I always, always envied a little bit the big corporations, bio, uh, like BioNTech, for example, a listed company or pharma companies, when they conduct clinical trials in-house, they have a lot of resources. So it always felt to me uh, the reasons that I experience in small companies why clinical trials fail don't exist in big corporation. What is the reality there? Is it also that sometimes these uh, big in-house trials of in-house trials in big corporations need rescue as well? 
Well, it's maybe a different type of rescue, but they also have similar problems. It's uh, because these problems do not depend on the CRO only. These are problems which can be sponsor related. They can be CRO related from both sides. And if you don't have a good planning, it doesn't matter whether you're a big farmer or small farmer, your planning is not good. And then you have the problem with the, with the um, yeah, upcoming clinical trial with the ongoing clinical trial performance. And so they may not call it rescue really, but uh, of course they have also delays in enrollment. And these 80% of enrollment delays are not caused by small companies. They are caused also by big pharma. Mm. So this is, I think, one of the key reasons, these enrollment problems. And then we have the second key reason, uh, communication problems and managing mm -hmm. the expectations, right? What, what, what is then, what, what can be done then? I mean, uh, one study that I experienced, uh, was very ambitious, well funded, all the money on a bank account. Um, and it really had issues then with the enrollment. So it was this case that I mentioned before. You promise a certain amount of patients. And after one year, you got only two in the company. When a study is going bad, what can be done? What, what, what is within your capabilities? Then I mean, I, I assume from what we discussed that at this point in time, the enrollment failed. Uh, mm -hmm. the investor is already frustrated. Uh, when an investor is frustrated, they need also to do something. And most of the time is exchanging the executive team. And, uh, when changes then happen, uh, I think also the communication starts going southward. And then we are in the situation we don't enroll. We have spent money, uh, no patience, bad communication. Uh, everybody is angry and frustrated. And then they come to you and say, help us rescue everything. <laughs> so what, 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 what can you do in that case then? Okay. Yeah, no, this is, thank you. This is a typical situation. <laughs> Asked sometimes to join in. Yeah. I think one is, of course, uh, First of, to perform a proper root cause analysis to see what went wrong, when it starts to go wrong, what, what has been done. Um, and when we are getting involved or any uh, third person, I think as a mediator, this role can, should be really kept neutral. What we always, uh, avoid is to blame one of the others. No, so you don't want to blame any project manager, either on sponsor or, or CRO side, but to really to understand what went wrong. In, in the whole preparation in the in the activities and it could be the feasibility assessment a lack of feasibility maybe they didn't do even any year it's also possible and um, and then to to see if it's bad yeah, bad communication is a is really a difficult part and this can still happen and that's why it's also my passion to yeah always optimize the cooperation between sponsor and uh, CRO from the past experience. And here I think uh, it is very important that the company's senior management get really involved. And I'm talking about the CEOs and uh, on this level, the C-level um, uh, people, that they talk to each other. Because we have the different layers of, of communication. We have the day-to-day -day work with the project managers. We have the line managers taking care that certain goals are met and that they are streamlined. But then we have also, of course, the C-level and, uh, and company owners. And uh, I think they also need to talk. And if they can agree, on how to improve communication, how to, you know, what activities can be taken, then it will be much easier also for the people to work together and to, to increase their communication. Because 
yeah, if, if on the day-to-day -day level, the communication goes bad, people are blaming each other. I mean, we have participated sometimes in operational calls where they're really shouting at each other from the sponsor, from the CEO. So this doesn't bring anybody anywhere. And um, I'd really try to find uh, the solutions. And if... And what my experience is sometimes if it doesn't work really on the top level that they cannot find, then you should really consider whether you can continue working with the CRO or adding another CRO for certain services. You must not change completely, but could be added a different CRO partly. But this is what we always try to avoid. I think as a mediator, it should be more our goal really to find solutions that the companies find a way getting back on track, maybe they have to change. They have to be critical to them. Each of them have to be critical to themselves. Should the protocol be changed to get better patients in? Should the countries be added? Of course, it's another investment. It's, this is always a problem. But as long as it is transparent and knowledge-based, it can be knowledge-based decisions can lead to change. But then I would also assume that investors can understand it much better when they know what the reason is behind these new decisions or new uh, causes you will direct to. Yeah, completely. all I, I about com communication. I, I, would, <laughs> I completely agree with that. This is something that I would like to emphasize a little bit more now. Mm -hmm. uh, as I said, it's all about communication. And you also mentioned the term mediation. Um A clinical trial is not a machine. It's not an engine that you just flip the switch and then it runs uh, for two years. And at the end of the day, uh, it produces a clinical trial report, a study report. Uh, it's dealing with human beings and uh, setting the expectations, right? You mentioned also the term uh, root cause analysis. An analysis. Uh, can you explain a little bit more what you are doing with such a root cause analysis? Because I think it's very often missing. As you said, people start shouting at each other and there's a lot of emotion in the room and uh, just wastes time and energy. How How is your uh, process when you bring in this uh, root cause analysis? How does it look like? Yeah, we look at the different processes which were established at the companies. So what did the sponsor establish to, per, uh, to select the CRO, to perform oversight, to manage the study? So we look at the different processes in detail with different specialists. So because we take a, we have a quality manager, potentially an IT person, if there's a lot of technology involved. And um, so that we look at the different ways and discuss. And the, the same is done with the, on the vendor side. And then we also... And the best is to bring the teams together to talk about uh, from their perspectives, from both sides, what should have been done differently and what has been missed. And maybe because sometimes certain decisions were not made or they were postponed and they would have been um, important at an earlier stage. And also the CRO I mean, the problem is sometimes to get really the transparency in it when it's a, on a bad uh, relationship level, because CROs are sometimes not always that willing to dis to criticize a sponsor also. And but it's necessary; they have the knowledge, so they can tell us to us. We can collect the information and we can discuss it backwards also again with the sponsor. But I, we always try at the end, of course, to get the teams together to find uh, joint solutions. But this is quite a long process. It's not, not done within a couple of days. It's quite a process which takes time and um, a lot of discussions. But yeah, this is what we recommend uh, during the root cause analysis. So it's basically dealing with human beings, which is, uh, I think maybe it's this, this, this male, male picture of uh, 
seeing everything like a machine, but a clinical trial has to handle a lot of people and it's a, a huge management function mm -hmm. and uh, it's managing people and it needs leadership. I think uh, this is probably the right term. Um, you mentioned that um, people sometimes are already in this bad state where they start, start shouting at each other and this uh, doesn't really help. What is your recommendation for sponsors and investors when they feel that something goes wrong in the study and they don't want to reach this point of no return where we can say, okay, we can bring you in as a mediator and you uh, do your analysis and try to bring the people together. Are there steps before that that sponsors and investors can do to avoid going until that point where the clinical trial is about to fail completely? Absolutely. I mean, what we have discussed at the beginning, to, to start to be involved from the beginning, to have uh, established a certain oversight management tools, communication uh, tools established with the CRO. Uh, if you have, if you are doing this and if you know your contact persons on all the different levels, and I always recommend really to prepare a governance chart. It makes some work and it needs discussions, but then everybody knows exactly who to talk uh, in which cases and have escalation procedures in place because this is also important. If everything works well, it's fine, but you always have to consider for the worst case. That's why we have also contracts in place. I mean, you can define certain activities already with your contracts, for example, milestones, which could be related to certain payments, to certain successes, enrollment of patients and a certain milestone which you can pay. Um, this is one part you can manage, but the other part is really to get to be involved from the beginning, not to, to say after one year, oh, it's something is going wrong. This Then it's far too late for everybody. And um, and also, I would say in our times, what I have seen with, with CROs and sponsors, CROs are also having a lot of alert systems and they present them to the sponsor. But the sponsor has to take them seriously also and, and consider them as are they alerts which have a high impact on my clinical study. So that means, again, the experience has to uh, take place. But I think um, really to avoid coming to this point means early enough being involved in your clinical trial and know where it stands, have real-time data. Yeah, I couldn't agree more to that. I think uh, keeping emotions uh, out yeah. of the decision-making process and really trying to motivate people to speak up and look through the problems down to the root causes. And I also saw on the internet this method, uh, the five whys. So ask why, 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 why is this problem existing without blaming? I think this is the tricky yeah. part. Um, it, it's a leadership role, isn't it? It is absolutely a leadership role and it's leadership from both sides and, and team building processes. For example, we had a situation, uh, when you start a clinical stu study, you have a kickoff meeting. So you, you get the teams from the sponsor and the CRO, you get them together. You have a two day, three day, depending a kickoff meeting, discussing all the details of the study, agreeing on documents and so on, which is quite nice. It's very work intensive, but it clears a lot of work. And, um, we have sometimes kickoff meetings where we also create uh, team building processes. And one example I had, which was very helpful one day, was we created with a team a vision, how to work together, a vision and a mission and how to, how to, very, to work together. And with this team, the study had problems after half a year. And then the nature started blaming each other. Why didn't you do this? Why didn't you do that? And, but then, we go, we went back saying, 
This is the vision we had originally, how we want to work together. And then suddenly this, the team started looking again at the vision, talking objective in an objective way to each other, try, being solution oriented, being respectful in communication. And um, it suddenly helped. And it was much easier to find a solution to the problem. It was not awfully. It was not that the study completely ran down, but there were, there were some problems in some countries. And it worked well. And I think this is also something very important. As And you as, as a sponsor, you can easily drive the, uh, this, this process, having a team building exercise during a kickoff meeting. And, um, and of course, everybody is trying to have the main people always involved in this, in the same team. But of course, nature sometimes plays different. So certain people leave a team. There is career development. There are changes, but still, it is very important always to to reallocate the team and and even have an, another team exercise if if there is a lot of changes within the teams from both sides. This can happen. The human factor. It's absolutely you're absolutely right. I think this is one of the of the key success factors, and it also needs from leadership side the ability to motivate people to disagree. Yeah. To, to really speak up and not only demand uh, agreement all the time. Um, when I look at the study, so let's say uh, the human factor is in control. Um, then we also have these uh, scientific factors that probably a drug uh, is not effective or is not safe, so the study can't continue. Um, do you have a list of uh, checkpoints that you run through when you uh, are called in to rescue a study? Uh, that you need to check off where you say, okay, um, this study cannot be rescued. What are the three main reasons when you recommend uh, just stop it? Yeah, don't go on, don't continue. Well, we would hardly recommend to stop a study. I mean, it's uh, this would be against the way to find solutions. I mean, if the study per se is, is, is in a good shape, I mean, the protocol would fit uh, into the patients or we have to change the protocol, whatever. So I think to stop a study is something which can only be done on a different level. You stop a study because the safety, there are safety issues or there are issues with the, with the drug, then you can stop a study. But uh, um, I think uh, if you have a, an ongoing study with patients enrolled, and don't forget, these are patients, they are treated with a new drug and, and, and maybe the comparable drug. So you cannot just stop it. And um, so you should always be on the, in the process of finding a solution. The question could come if you need to change maybe the service provider, or if you need to add another service provider, maybe the monitoring is not going well. So you go for a different service provider, just taking care of the monitoring, but the rest can remain with the original CRO. So these are the, uh, the more the um, decisions we, we go forward. You would not say what are the key factors to stop. This is a regulatory question, I would say. <laughs> That's true. Uh, we have a question from uh, Hans Heinrich Nickel. Hans Heinrich, good to good to see you. Uh, it's just a question: How to calculate your, your your input? You know, your impact. What you are bringing into these discussions or uh, between CRO and investors? So, how you calculate it in the early stage? So, uh, is it time and material based costs, or can you really estimate a kind of uh, overall proposal for the services you might do in the next time? You mean uh, as part of the rescue studies or? As part of the rescue, yeah. So if, oh. if a client needs your service 
and say, yeah, this is a good idea to involve you in these discussions and to, to bring this study, you know, to a very good end. So what we have to pay for this. So is it, it's a time and material or can it be like a proposal? Like this is the overall cost because we, we think we have to do this and that and that. And so, um, so how you can calculate this. Well, it's a mix. I mean, it's uh, the proposal, of course, would bring out the details, but we would suggest how to approach um, okay. mm -hmm. the activities. Uh, the, uh, it's sometimes difficult uh, at the beginning to estimate the number of hours which oh. might be needed at that stage. Mm -hmm. We can give a rough estimation to it, but we would always say uh, what we have agreed with the majority of the sponsors is because after a root cause analysis, things uh, can change again, okay. um, that we would uh, agree on a cap, which would be the maximum to be paid per month, for example, and mm -hmm. um, and then going into the activities. But the more, uh, for some parts, we can clearly calculate and say mm -hmm. this is a, the sum, and some parts would be uh, looked at on a flexible basis. Okay. Thank you. Did this answer your question? Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Heidrich. So when we when we when when I, when I uh, sum up what I heard from you, it basically looks to me like uh, the two areas, the main causes of uh, failing trials are on one hand communication, which is managing people and managing expectations between people, and on the other hand, it's scientific reasons and uh, safety efficacy reasons. Um, would that be a, a great summary of the last uh, hour, or would you add other reasons that you see that I didn't mention? Yeah, the management is, of course, the communication and the expectations. It's, uh, for me, it's always also going back to this point, because also if you don't have clear communications, uh, expectations it will have an influence on the communication. And, um, and of course, when you, for the planning, we should not forget about the planning of the clinical trial, uh, which is, I think the one of the key aspects that you really go into a proper planning, take your time, take the resources and try to, uh, um, yeah, avoid as many as risks as possible during the planning stage. I would like to stay a little bit with the planning because I think this is also important, especially for the majority of the companies that, uh, depend on venture capital, uh, venture capital investments. Um, I mean, when I look at venture funds, they usually have a certain period of time where they can invest and then they need to produce results in terms of an exit, which means the clinical trial must be completed. Otherwise, uh, they run out of money and they can't reinvest in the company, which means um, a, a trial needs to be planned really properly because also the investors only allocate a little bit of runway that they can add to the company. But uh, as I said, it's not it's not a tremendous runway. What can be done in your opinion on the communication side to encourage zeros to not make these uh, exaggerated sales pitches where uh, everything is uh, shiny and great and you get for a certain amount of uh, capital, uh, everything that you want, but to really communicate clearly whether the expect early on, whether the expectations of the potential sponsor uh, when he starts the trial are really uh, working or are not working. What can be done on your, in your opinion to motivate zeros to come up with uh, realistic numbers? I think realistic numbers, uh, yeah, I think that's both sides uh, because what we have experienced a lot is that sponsors have 
quite some unrealistic expectations on how they want to uh, perform the clinical trial in between. Yeah, of, of, course, of, of, of course, I mean, everybody wants to be very quick and, and exactly. don't do anything. This is the reason why I ask, what can a sponsor do to get the realistic number uh, yeah. or, or, or to find a CRO who really uh, starts challenging the sponsor early on? Because yeah. at, the, at the end of the day, nobody's happy. I mean, of course, I understand the scientists when they, for example, the, the, the standard company is uh, scientists makes an invention at the university, then finds out that his or her invention can really change the world, then decides to jump shift and move from the, let's call it safe creative, creative haven uh, university research organization into this novel environment development, which is a completely different mindset. And then the scientist who's then CEO finds some investors and then moves to the next step to become a clinical company, which is the next mindset shift. So, I mean, of course, I understand the people then on the sponsor side that maybe as a lack of experience, so they do everything the first time, uh, they don't have the right expectations to what trials. What are your recommendations? Uh, to the zeros, how to handle such situations? How can, how can they help such sponsors? Yeah, I think, uh, no, it's again on the sponsor side. Uh, when you start preparing your, your ideas, you're collecting your ideas for this clinical trial, talk to several zeros. Go and get information from several zeros. So you will see how they will approach your clinical study. And, um, and then ask for the, um, a small feasibility is normally given by a zero. Uh, only when you go into a, a really detailed feasibility assessment, uh, then the sponsor should pay for it. But uh, generally at the first end, when they have experience in the indication, and this is a, pre, uh, this is a selection of the vendors. So this is a, a, a critical part. Talk to vendors, talk, talk to CROs who have the experience. Try to find out that they show what kind of experience they have, that they did comparable studies in these comparable indications, what was their experience. Ask also open questions as sponsors. And because these CROs have a lot of data and, uh, and they, uh, of, of course, they should share the data in a, in a very neutral way. And um, so that you can see as a sponsor, which CRO really provides you with details and uh, has the best knowledge in it. And then, of course, you you should discuss with these CROs what their ideas are, what their recommendations are, what their experience are. So it's not just talking to one CRO. At the beginning, you should talk, I would say, even to five, five different CROs at different sizes. And But look at their experience and see what they can do. Do they have the regional experience, the indication, the sites? So they have a lot of these presentations they can provide you. And there must not be only the shiny um, dog and pony shows, but it can be really this um, detailed uh, overview of their experience. And they should bring also to these presentations, uh, should have already specialists of their teams, like the medical advisors, the data manager, the, the lead CRA, a project manager who has done uh, studies in these indications. And I think this is something, if you invest also a little bit on time at the beginning and uh, talk to the CROs, it's a building of trust and understanding. So it's not only the CRO not being open enough and, and critical enough, but I think it's, it's a, this again, <laughs> communication. We ask the certain questions which are relevant for you and you will see what the CROs will come up with. 
Yeah, I also think when people buy a car, they spend half a year researching, uh, getting proposals <laughs> yeah. and uh, finding the right fit. And when it then comes to clinical trials, um, it's like uh, I ask one zero, get one offer and sign it and uh, just wait two years. It's, it's clearly mm. not. I would also go to the extent that uh, money invested in feasibility study or in consultancy fees early on can save a lot of trouble later down the road. I mean, when we talk about clinical trials, we talk about including the material. Then we, I think we talk at the lower end about the minimum of 5 million euros that goes into depending on the indication, of course, what, what drug development it is and what stage it is. But I think the lower end uh, is somewhere about 5 million. And then it just goes upwards. Uh, clinical phase two trials and three trials are more expensive. And uh, saving, trying to save money on the feasibility studies can really cause a lot of financial impact later on, negative mm -hmm. financial impact. Would you agree to that statement? Absolutely. I mean, this is, this is a classical approach. The more you invest upfront, so that you can make knowledge-based decisions, the, the, the better, the more positive is the impact on the on the ongoing clinical trial later on, on the clinical trial performance. And um, but this is uh, brings us back to the point we had at the beginning: when to start preparing a clinical study. This takes time, mm -hmm. and to do a proper feasibility takes a couple of months. It's not done within a week. It can be the, yeah, with two three months maybe, but uh, but it takes time and uh, to look at the data to perform the analysis to it, make decisions following the feasibility assessment, changing potentially the protocol. Yeah, I mean, this is these are things, of course, you would like to avoid, but the more you are open to it, the more realistic might be the outcome later on the study. On yeah, your plant. It's, it's usually a financial impact because when I think also CROs don't uh, do extensive feasibility studies for free, is it right? No, so they should not do it. It's very, it's a lot of resources. When you do a proper feasibility assessment, they can do, and the majority of the CROs we have worked with, they did it. They can do some easy feasibility based on their data. They have some yeah. good sites. They have some data available in their database and they can give some ideas about the feasibility and recommendations, which country they would go to. And, but then of course, when you really want to go into details, you found a CRO, then it should be a very properly managed uh, feasibility assessment. And then the sponsor, uh, of course, will be asked to pay for it because it's resource intensive. And the bigger the study, the more resources a CRO would need for a feasibility assessment. I mean, when we talk about the future of clinical trial management, I also think that since 2006, it was the, the year when I started working in, in the pharma industry, uh, also the industry evolved. I mean, nowadays people talk a lot about personalized medicine, rare diseases, and uh, probably also the challenges with uh, setting up such trials are different, like the approach of the 90s, where I had the feeling that uh, everybody was talking about the one drug fits all purposes and diseases. Uh, how do you see the evolution of clinical trials and drug development in the last 20, 20 30 years? Oh, I think that's, yeah, the direction would be the much more personalized medicine. And, uh, and I think the technology is also already more and more developed to support the idea to have a better understanding which patients could fit, uh, have the best benefit of certain drugs, uh, uh, have the highest risk for certain drugs. I mean, this is the, the use of artificial intelligence, of modeling, uh, uh patient uh, needs model, model, uh, modeling drug development. So I think there would be much more more um, yeah, individualized uh, medicine be available in the future. And yeah. And I think it wouldn't, it doesn't that add a little bit of complexity then also to the clinical trial planning? 
No, I think you would get much more information up front. I mean, I would assume that the feasibility assessment, which was recently done, calling sites and uh, sending sending uh, questionnaires to sites, might be done by a good uh, by a company who used this for modeling purposes, collecting a lot of information. Mm -hmm. They can run a feasibility assessment, and they, it's available already. And um, really, are we are we already there yet? So that's all the data segregated. Yeah, in certain indications, it depends really on the because these companies who develop the the models and the uh, um, the algorithm. They, of course, depend on the input they can get. And uh, so, therefore, it's in development. But for certain indications like diabetes, you can have much more already available than for a rare disease, for example. When I look uh, at the trends in clinical studies and in personalized medicine and uh, rare diseases I want, do you also see other trends that are upcoming? Well, that's more uh, not only the um, the use of technology, I think this is something which is really uh, fast developing. That was also maybe uh, the good outcome of the pandemic that, of course, uh, new uh, technology was uh, more accepted and also by the regulatory authorities, they easily adjusted because suddenly there was a situation that uh, patients couldn't come to the hospitals anymore. Mm -hmm. And so there had to be uh, new ways had to be established, which were already existing. It's not really that these ways were new, but they were now further developed and they were accepted by, by the companies and by the regulatory authorities, which then moved into these kind of decentralized clinical trials so that uh, activities were directed towards the patient, not only towards the site, but that patients could be reached in their environment. They could stay at home and there was uh, telemedicine was further developed. Uh, nurse study nurses, the so-called flying nurses who went to the uh, patients to do certain examinations. So these are trends which will further develop. Um, they will not be completely virtual. I don't think so because uh, this has happened in the past. But I would say the future might be a hybrid uh, version so that certain patients for certain um, examinations might go to a hospital or to a special site. But then those sites would be also maybe differently arranged that they are more close to the patient and, um, and other parts can be at home. This is this is very interesting, um, this concept. So the picture I got from clinical trials is uh, that patients need to go to specialized clinics. Uh, to be part of the trial. And you mentioned, and I also heard it before, that now everything changes to be become decentralized. Is that really possible? Yeah, it, it works. I mean, there are good uh, examples already available for decentralized clinical trials and a lot of tools. Even, I mean, every patient has to sign an informed consent at the beginning of a clinical trial. It's nowadays available that you can have online in con con uh, on informed consent uh, signatures And but then it depends on the countries in Europe. Uh, not all countries accept um, these uh, online signatures. So sometimes uh, a written a wet, uh, ink signature has to be sent then to the site again. But it's possible that the patient does not need to come to the site to to sign the informed consent. And um, so these are uh, small developments which are regularly uh, uh, used already. And uh, quite we had recently a webinar about this topic. Mm -hmm. And uh, and we had uh, invited one company to yeah to present on informed consent on this virtual informed consent, which is, is a great development. And so more and more will be happening in this direction. Absolutely. 
I couldn't agree more. There's so much technology on the market that uh, is already there that uh, helped moving forward. It was, I think, back in 2016, 17, when I traveled to South Korea, they showed uh, one test uh, hospital where they implemented all gadgets that are available on the market. I mean, it was great because the patient was delivered just in time to the hospital. And then I came back to Europe and saw that we are in a completely different world because the regulatory authorities are a little bit working differently, like this test hospital in South Korea. Uh, what is your opinion on the future of uh, trial management when we look at artificial intelligence, the digital data? Um, what great uh, developments do you see that will come to the market in the next five to 10 years? Well, I think... Um... Yeah, I, I'm not this uh, crystal ball looker for technology because uh, I just, think just dream, <laughs> let's just dream, dream away. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I I look at what is currently available, and I see the big uh, advantages. For example, when you look at decentralized uh, clinical trial concepts, where things where certain activities are brought to the patient and not patient to the side, because this was also, this is uh, causing a lot of problems sometimes in clinical studies that there's logistics behind and the patient goes to the side and then suddenly it has to, uh, he has to spend the whole day at the side because the logistics were not really thought through. Now these things are stopping because they cannot be possible anymore. And, uh, and people are, and patients are not that demotivated. I mean, that they spend a lot of time to go into the sites. They have to go back and forth. And sometimes within two weeks, they had to go three times to the site, which sometimes was not thought through for the practical aspects, for the logistical aspects. And if you use more of the technologies and uh, consider more focus within the clinical studies, then, um, I would say this would lead to, to, um, reaching maybe drugs faster to market at less cost. Because when you look at artificial intelligence, just this morning I was reading about one company. They have developed um, the digital twin. So that, for example, there's a digital twin which uh, collect, which can be used for, for comparable data like placebo data. And uh, so this could, if this works out, it can re reduce tremendously the amount of patients which uh, who have to be enrolled in the clinical study. So this would have a big effect on shorten the timelines of a clinical study shorten, and potentially also the, to shorten the costs of a clinical trial. And, um, but I think the costs is one part, but the timelines would be very important so that drugs can, become, can come much faster to the market and reach mm -hmm. much uh, earlier unmet medical needs. And I think this could be one where I would see in the future with, with the use of artificial intelligence or certain uh, digitalization in clinical trials and uh, also maybe reducing preclinical activities by modeling animal, um, models and reducing also the amount of animals which we will be needed for for developing preclinical data so i think this would be um my hope and vision <laughs> that drugs can come much shorter to the market with um, yeah less patients involved and less animals yeah both <laughs> what what is the digital digital twin that you were talking about how does it work uh, to be honest, I, I just I, wa I was just fascinated when when um, I saw this in in mm. uh, one short article about some startups which uh, were recommended, and uh, so the, what I understood is that um, the digital twin is an it's like an intelligent control arm 
for placebo. So you have the patient getting the investigational medical product and the digital twin has the modeling and the data, uh, yeah, as an intelligent control arm. And uh, so, yeah, it was the first time this morning I heard it. I thought I could share this with you and I will look more, de- more in detail into it because I found this very uh, yeah, interesting uh, as a, on a perspective how you can de- create a completely different uh, trial design. I mean, when I when I reflect on what you said in the last one and a half hour, I think one 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 key factor why clinical trials uh, go southwards uh, is the human factor. You also mentioned a couple of minutes ago that the patients can be demotivated. Uh, it's patients are not a given to a clinical trial, so they are also yeah. human beings that needs to be taken care of properly and uh, treated like human beings. And it's not just a factor; a patient is not a given. Uh, in your opinion, how important uh, is this human factor? Yeah, it's it's still the key factor. I mean, we all every clinical trial has to deal with humans, and uh, so whether it's a patients, uh, it's a um, sponsor, the vendors. I mean, that's all human factor is still most important. Even when you use the technology, I mean, you cannot use the technology without the humans behind it, mm-hmm. and. Um, when you use technology like telemedicine and uh, interviewing online with patients, it's a human factor behind it. Everybody has to be motivated to stay in the clinical study. I mean, when I with what you said, so I wrote down this for, to the initial question to this free checklist, to these three steps for sponsors, uh, what to look at clinical trials and what they should take care of. So one is this communication and motivation. And when I look on the pandemic, I think this this fast development speed of the vaccines, which basically were uh, developed for safety and efficacy reasons already in other indications over a couple of decades. So the science was already well established, well set up in the first trials. But still, I mean, For a new indication, one year from uh, scratch, I think in February 2020, and a year later, we're already on the market. Probably these are also these three factors that really played out very well. So one is the communication and motivation. I mean, the whole world was watching. And how motivating must that be for people who work in a clinical trial when they really get the feeling that they can change the world. And this is probably one message to the sponsor or one learning that we can take from the pandemic. Motivate people, motivate people uh, that with their work, they do something good and they change the world. Would they change something in clinical trials, in your opinion, this one factor communication and motivation to really play that very well? Yes, of course. I think it's absolutely that uh, when you have the motivated people, I mean, I, I remember from the time when the vaccines were developed and I was reading, uh, talk, also talking to some CROs where I knew that they were involved in the clinical studies for the vaccines. I mean, they were working really 24 hours. So they mm-hmm. had teams yeah. in place. So because everybody was motivated to have the things be done as quick and fast and safe as possible. And the regulatory authorities, I mean, they really went beyond their limits and and made it available, made it possible because never ever we will have the situation that drugs could come to the market that fast as we had in the special situation or during the pandemic. Because generally, it takes many more years to test, especially also a vaccine with all the follow up um, uh, examinations. And but here the motivation was the best example that people really worked um, beyond their limits to to make it possible. And I think this is a leadership role that sponsors have to take up. And this is maybe one of the factors. The second factor that I noted down is uh, when it comes to patients, also the human factor and the motivation and uh, the logistics around the patient. How important uh, is that, in your opinion, to avoid failure? 
Uh, yeah, it's getting more and more important. And a lot of companies already involve patients or patient groups when they plan clinical trials, and it's highly recommended. And there will be also guidelines coming up, uh, as far as I know, where uh, sponsors should prove they ha that they have involved patients during the uh, protocol development because they see the practical aspects. They understand the diseases in a different way and uh, know what is important for them. Um, and so patients will uh, clearly play a, a, a yeah, key important role in the future. And I think this also played probably out very well during the pandemic that the patients were really, really uh, basically taken care of properly because everybody depended on the outcome and motivated patients to, uh, or, uh, let's say, uh, healthy volunteers in that case mm -hmm. uh, to participate in the study. And also the third part was planning that I noted down, planning, finance, yeah. proper early finance. stage planning. Mm -hmm. How, how high is the percentage in your opinion that failed because of uh, just improper pl planning, f uh, running out of money? I was running out of money. I'm not so sure about uh, because, uh, yeah, it's difficult to get some data around it. Uh, but maybe you you know more through investors. But uh, <laughs> but the planning is really the most important part. And uh, and then sometimes it's also a decision if, if it becomes too costly, then you see from the planning perspective, because when you plan, you might not even have started activities around the clinical study. But if you really collect a lot of information about the costs, you can still consider whether it makes sense to, to start the clinical trial. Uh, compared to the uh, return on investment or to, to change or to the aspect of the clinic, try to make it less complex and, but get a lot of information already, uh, which, which you need for further developments. I think uh, we, it's, it's a planning also of the financial budget should be uh, realistic. And, uh, we always recommend and even when you get budgets from the CRO at 25%, because it's always something uh, will change and will go in a different way or goes wrong. There's always something. <laughs> yeah, you, it can be simple things. It can be that the regulatory authorities request certain changes which have an impact on cost. So it doesn't make it's not dependent on the sponsor. It's not dependent on the CRO. Yeah, yeah you're right. I mean, this uh, finances when something went wrong, it was mostly the enrollment was just uh, overestimated or highly exaggerated. And, uh, mm -hmm. When later on you have to include other sites, new sites, of course, it drives the expenses. And then it really can happen that uh, investors, existing investors can't reinvest in the company because they're already at the limit uh, when we talk about adding a, a couple of millions. And um, with an ongoing trial going on the market, finding new investor when there are already problems, it's not a point the company wants to be because it's no. not very convincing for the investor <laughs> to go in. Or if they are bold enough to bet on a positive outcome and they, for example, uh, contact you and send you in, then uh, the conditions would not be very favorable for the, for the executive board. So it's a really, if I think asking questions early on to come up with a proper number and communicate that properly helps tremendously because it's easier When the existing investors can cover all the expenses, it's easier before the clinical trial starts to go on the market and raise funds than when the executive team is desperate because the clinical trial is failing. Yeah, it's uh, yeah clear, <laughs> understandable. Yeah, no, but I think that's also a few. Um, there are numbers available, and it's 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 very difficult to say what is the average. Uh, 
dollar amount for a phase two or for a phase three study. Mm -hmm. They are available, these numbers. But I think uh, really involving specialists, helping you to, to consider the full budget of a clinical study is um, helpful. I mean, we have the sometimes as companies that they really ask from the big, they want to have a budget from, from the planning of the clinical study until the marketing authorization. Yeah. So we are talking about seven, eight years of, of planning. And, but I think it makes sense so that they have uh, also internally an idea about uh, uh, the investments they have to make. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. It helps to just think uh, through the quickest way to the market, at which point pharma companies need to come in, what can be covered for, from investors, from the investor's perspective. And the more questions people ask at the beginning, the lower the failure rate is further down the road. When we just look at this isolated fact of financing finances. So everything that happens in between these value inflection points is very tricky to finance on the market on favorable mm -hmm. terms. I mean, this would be the, the three factors that I noted down in our conversation. It's uh, communication. Mm -hmm. Human factor, also when it comes to patients, don't forget about the patient. So it's not just a, a number and planning and finance. Are there other factors that you would consider uh, important to, to mention in this, in this uh, recording? I think, I think I would say that these are really the key um, issues and uh, the common, for me, it's always the communication, but I su summarize always uh, all the, Technical communication, human communication. I mean, there is so much communication available within the clinical trial, which is for me key. And then, of course, the oversight to all these activities. Maintain the oversight, be in real data and be alert enough, uh, early enough to, to see if something goes wrong, just to avoid that uh, the failure rate goes up again. Yeah. So it's. I think it's... Um, Yeah, it's a very complex. It's not, for me, it's not easy to put this as you have realized to put this down on three things. It's, it's too complex. And, uh, but I would say if, if you have a good communication established and, uh, a realistic communication and are open also to the input given uh, by advisors, I think then you're, you could be on a good way to so avoid, to avoid risks. <laughs> Let's come to the final part of the conversation. Uh, When something happens then in a study, what is the right way to approach you? Right? What is the best time to call you in to rest? Oh. Um, I think it's, uh, we are very often involved in the planning stage already mm -hmm. so that we help setting up sponsors for an oversight system and establishing the communication with the CRO, looking at the contracts I want to, to uh, discuss with the CRO so that we can, uh, put a lot of uh, information already inside at the uh, at an early stage. Um, if this is not possible, if a sponsor comes, and this is more the general case, I must say, uh, if everything goes wrong, then um, yeah, as soon as possible. If you have the impression that you cannot find a solution or it's very difficult for you to approach or you don't have the resources. I mean, this is, this is the most understandable part. If you're a small company, you might not have the resources to spend a lot of time doing the root cause analysis. And then we are getting involved. So you, it's not only that uh, people should call you when they have to rescue a study. So the preferred uh, part would be uh, early on, as you mentioned. So yeah, we would uh, recommend this, but uh, to be honest, it is more the other way around. But it's no problem. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, but uh, when you work so long in clinical research, as we do, and all our specialists are very experienced, um, You always know that, yeah, you have to deal with conflict situations. And we are very, I think, experienced in handling conflicts. 
And um, so, but it's always nicer to avoid them, <laughs> but it's rarely, rarely the case. It, it's part of uh, it's part of the human factor, I guess. So that yeah. uh, disagreement or speaking up uh, sometimes also can uh, result in conflict that has to be resolved. But this is part of the game, I guess. It's uh, something that is part of human beings. So I mm -hmm. don't know if avoiding conflict is the right approach. What do you think? Avoiding conflict. <laughs> <laughs> as long as long as people can, as long as people speak up and don't uh, don't exactly. don't. Uh, yeah. Uh, don't are afraid of uh, mentioning potential root causes. But, I mean, when I look at the companies I worked with and something went wrong, it was pro most of the time miscommunication early on that could have been avoided if just people were encouraged to speak up. Uh, not everybody is a great communicator. So sometimes it really takes uh, a lot of time uh, to listen to people and uh, listen to what they believe the root causes are. And sometimes it's really tricky because... Uh, the results of the communication might not be what people want to hear. And uh, this, this communication part is really key to success, in my opinion. Yes, it's a communication part, but you can also, I think, try to be objective in this way by having a good risk management plan. I mean, this is, again, a tool. So I'm using tools like key performance indicators, governance charters, but also risk management plans. I mean, set up a risk management, and this is a living document throughout the whole clinical trial. You do this together with your vendors, and you look in regular intervals internally and together with your vendors, and um and see whether certain risks are coming and how to avoid these risks. So, and I think this is um, part of the speak up, definitely, but also um, a good, again, leadership and management, risk management. Vendor risk management is one of the yeah, important parts of oversight management. Let me ask you one final question. What is, uh, from my end, what is the best way to reach out to you? When somebody hears the podcast afterwards uh, and decides it would be necessary to rescue a trial or to include you in your planning, what's the best way to engage with you and your team? Oh, yeah, always reachable via website, LinkedIn. Um, we will have, I'm Calendly, just drop, uh, drop a call. I mean, you can, uh, I have this calendar so that you can request for a, a, a short consultation before we can go in for, in further, into further details. So, um, yeah, I think we will show up also at the end how you can reach us best. And, but this is the easiest way. Give a call, drop an email. We are here and, uh, immediately answer your questions. Also, when you have any questions after this uh, session, I think this is uh, the best way. Just drop an email. And I think you are also, let me just pop up a slide, and I think you are also at uh, a conference. Yeah. At some conferences. Yeah, the next one is next week, or in two weeks. It's in, in, in Munich <laughs> already. And uh, for medical device companies, where we have also a roundtable discussion, And then it continues in May in Switzerland with the Swiss Biotech Day and Outsourcing Clinical Trials Barcelona. This is one of the big events in Barcelona in clinical trials and the Biotechnology Days in Germany, of course, and the Bionale, which is our home run in Berlin. <laughs> so it's uh, one, two, three, four, five uh, conferences. Yeah, just for the next two months, yeah. Next two months. And of course, Barcelona with the nice beach. So, yes. <laughs> and there are, people have the possibility to also uh, engage with uh, these uh, conferences with uh, the possibility to have one-on-one -on -one conversations or... Yes. Uh, 
Yes, we will be present. Uh, we will, we are at least two to three people from Loomis who will be present at these conferences. And, uh, so, yeah, would be great to, to connect with you and just drop a short email, give a call. We don't have a booth there, but it's normally easy to, to connect. And these are in-person conferences. Yes, like they are all in-person conferences. So, so far. We are, we are coming back. We're coming back to real life. Heike, I'm done with my questions. Is there anything you would like to add at the end of the podcast that I forgot asking you and you would consider important to mention? No, I think you have, we have covered a lot about uh, risk management in clinical studies and how to avoid risk and how to deal with risk when they come up. So I think, uh, yeah, I don't, uh, I think, I hope I could help with getting some, we are putting some new ideas into certain planning stages and, um, and see that, yeah, the idea, of course, is to avoid in future times uh, going into rescue clinical studies and or trying to minimize as possible the risk in clinical trials. That's why I will uh, encourage everybody to reach out to you when they start <laughs> thinking about a clinical trial the first time. Um, and I think your Calendly link is very helpful and also the conferences. Uh, Heike, thank you very much for your time, for this thank great you. conversation to shine more light on clinical trials, how to rescue them and why they need rescuing in the first place. And uh, I will share your contact data then in the description of the podcast mm -hmm. and also add your Calendly link so people who then listen to the podcast can directly uh, contact you and your team and uh, keep up your great work and uh, keep motivating people to manage the human factors well, because it's always a pity mm -hmm. when clinical trials fail for whatever reasons. Uh, a lot of money is burned. I mean, we can survive that, but the pity is for the patients because the compounds that might have had value don't reach the market once mm -hmm. uh, an asset is burned and becomes toxic, no investor invests anymore. And, uh, The idea is just dropped and uh, reaching out to you, your team or uh, zeros, starting proper planning, uh, setting up the right communication tool helps at the end of the day, the patients. Okay. Thank you. Have a great day. Bye. You too. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Bye. Thanks for listening. Please, please share the podcast and make sure you've subscribed. Have a great day.